Today's scripture comes from John 14, verses 1 through 11, and it's on page 901 of the Pew Bibles. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is the word of God. We're starting a new series that uh, we're going to call Hard Questions. And so this is what we're going to run through this through the, the summer. And each week, we just like to highlight a question that um, people in, you know, this is, we, li we live in a post-Christian culture, and there are a lot of uh, skeptical questions, and they have doubts about why they don't think Christianity is credible. And so um, each week, we'd like to tackle one of these type of questions and try to give a, a really biblical and, um, and a, an answer that people will see as relevant to their lives. Um, it won't just be me. I will do the first two messages, but then we're going to have all, all the different pastors, uh, the, all the English-speaking ones, that is, uh, um, and um, take a crack at a different question. And if there's one that you're burning to have answered, um, you let us know, and we'll consider it, okay? But um, to start the series, um, I, I decided to hit the doozy. Uh, the question is, how can Jesus be the only way to salvation, right? Maybe that's a question you ask. Uh, that and and uh, and then of course I'm sure you have uh, friends, neighbors, um, you know, may, uh, maybe even your family members who don't believe in Jesus. This is uh, the, in their mind. This is like it's offensive. <laughs> it's isn't this exclusivistic? This is really the question of exclusivism, and that you can think that your religion has the only right truth that takes people to salvation. That seems very arrogant and very narrow-minded and very exclus um, exclusive, and you're excluding all these other uh, religious worldviews. How could you possibly be so arrogant? I, I can't, I can't um, accept a worldview like that. Okay, so um, that is a, a, a common objection to Christianity. And that's the one we're going to deal with today, all right? And so in, in three parts, um, part one, the blind men and the elephant. You guys know what I'm going to talk about, right? <laughs> the blind men 
and the elephant. If, uh, if you don't know what I'm going to talk about, I'm, I'm sure you'll have heard something like this before. Part two, um, practicing religion and the exclusionary clash of values. This is something everybody does. So this is maybe a bit, a bit of a surprise. If, you are, if you're listening to this message and um, you don't consider yourself a religious person, person I'm, I'm going to challenge you by saying everybody practices religion. <laughs> everybody practices religion. And everybody practices exclusionary values, all right? There's an exclusionary class of values that happen in our society, and everybody does it. It's not like just a Christian thing, and we're so tolerant, and Christians are intolerant. That's just false, right? And part three, I'm going to close and try to finally give something more of, of, of a really central Christian answer to this question of why it has to only be Jesus. And I'm going to close with a portion talking about the union with Christ and the nature of true salvation, right? The union with Christ and the nature of true salvation. So part one, um, the blind man and the elephant. You guys have probably heard this, this story. There are many people who, who want to believe this, uh, that there's, so this is actually, there's a famous Hindu, it's, it's, it's actually Hindu, a Hindu parable, that reality is something like an elephant. <laughs> okay, reality is an elephant, and all the different adherents, all the different positions of, of religions are like blind men, um, except they're all touching a different portion of the elephant. Some are, you know, like, you know, dealing with the tusk. It's pointy and kind of hard. Some are dealing with the trunk. It's kind of long. And then some are, like, just dealing with the belly. Like, it's kind of like, what is this? It's, like, big and, like, unwieldy or something like this. And you touch different portions of the elephant. And, but really, all these different religions, they're just only seeing just portions of it. But really, at the end of it, when it gets all, we're all just seeing that we're just, they're just all alternative ways to the same one reality, which is the elephant, right? God, or heaven, or ultimate reality, or whatever language that people want to use is ultimately something like the elephant. You guys have heard this? Now, um, now let's just, let me just start with this. Um, a lot of people believe this, and that our society you know, when they look at Christianity, Christianity seems to be completely, I mean, we, very Christianity, the gospel, flat out disagrees with this perception of reality. <laughs> that there is one God, he can be known. We're not blind to it. Of course, you cannot know him exhaustively, but you can know him reliably. <laughs> and the pathway, well, there's one way, and that is through Jesus Christ. So there is a flat out disagreement here. But let me just, just first grant, isn't that an attractive... <laughs> Isn't that an attractive um, position? Um, it wouldn't it be nice if, you know, this Christianity, this is just kind of our way of doing it, and then the Hindus have their way of doing it, and the Buddhists have their way of doing it, seculars have their way of doing it, and we're all just well-meaning people, and we all just kind of end up in the same place. It wouldn't that, we wouldn't have to, to argue about it. It seems like a really nice view. And one of the, um, the underlying positions is not just the sheer doctrine that Christianity believes that there's only one way to salvation. One of the offenses is that there's an underlying question mark in our society about, um, about peace and about um, civic order. Can we have a real pluralistic society where people really believe deeply different things and yet really treat each other um, with civic kindness and accept each other in, um, as human beings? 
Like that's one of the accusations against Christianity is that because we have this, this supposedly this most arrogant and intolerant perspective on religion, that we are going to like we're going to be um, people that undermine civic peace. <laughs> but I actually would like to propose that it's actually quite the opposite. <laughs> it's actually quite the opposite. That if there is no deep fundamental one basis of what it means to be human that we can rely upon and see and actually that we're all just going to have, that we're going to have different and deeply, deeply contradictory factions with no basis of, no fundamental basis of unity, that that is actually the thing that produces warring factions. Now, it seems like a really nice idea. Now, this, this uh, viewpoint, I mean, um, I, I'm sure many of you have heard this before. Um, the person, at least in the West, who's really um, analyzed this is Leslie Newbegin. And um, he wrote this book called The Gospel in a Pluralist World. And Leslie Newbegin is an English missionary to India. And so, of course, he knows all about different Hindu perspectives. And he wrestled with this. He says, this seems like a very attractive, it's an attractive perspective. I mean, there's a, I'll very admit to you that there's a part of me that says, like, it would be kind of nice to be like this. And then I don't have to, like, put myself out there as Christian and then, like, some, you know, offend certain people and then we'll just kind of get along, get along. Is that, that, that's what, that's what, that's what we'd like, um, people like to think, that we'll just, we're all just well-meaning and we'll get along. But Leslie Newbigin pointed something out about this. He said that if you actually think about this, there's a hidden, exclusive, and actually arrogant claim that's going on there. That if you actually think about the story, if you know the, the story, you know the elephant. <laughs> you know that ultimate reality is an elephant inside the story. Well, how can anybody know that if no one religion actually has access to the big truth. In other words, even inside that story, there is a piece of dogma. There is a piece of belief and doctrine that they're asking you to accept. It's kind of being slipped in on the backside. But there is a point that says, well, we already know what the reality is. Everybody's partially blind, but of course, except for those of us who posit the elephant, and really, so this perspective, it is, again, its own exclusionary religious viewpoint. And if you say this is the right one, and something like another viewpoint where it says this is the right pathway to God can't be accepted, it's actually just a, it's its own form of religious exclusion. You understand? <laughs> that inside of itself, there's a kind of self-defeating incoherence going on. Now, let me... Let me unpack this a little bit more. I, I actually think um, that it makes sense that it comes from Hinduism. And I'm not sure how many, how many of you, not that I'm any kind of expert on Hinduism, but I know that actually, at least I know the, the, the basic tenets. And Hinduism um, is a kind of amalgam of two seeming, I think, I think tension-filled, contradictory worldviews. One is pantheism. And pantheism is the view that there is an impersonal force that is God. It's not a God you can pray to and get to know, but it's like an impersonal. It's kind of, you know, like you guys have all seen Star Wars. This is the force. May the force be with you. And it's like a force that holds all. Of course, they don't call it, in, in, in Hinduism, they don't call it the force. They call it Brahma, right? B-R-A-H-M-A. I'm, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, right? And that's 
that's the ultimate reality, Brahma. And so in their view, in their view, the elephant is Brahma. And there's no impersonal, and nobody can grasp all of it. But in their day-to-day lives throughout India, what you have are practicing polytheists. You have pantheism and polytheism kind of like held together in, a, in an odd kind of tension. And so day-to-day, they're all relativists. It's like, I have my God, you have your God, that village has their God. On the other side of India, where the Hindus, they have their God. Our God is completely contradictory to that God, and our God, and we actually hate those kind of people even though they're Hindus, because their values are, we actually consider them really wrong. And, and if those people were to be our neighbors, we'd probably have a war. Because that's what relativism actually produces. Polytheism and relativism, because there's no one truth, there's only just different kinds of gods all over the place. This is all it can produce. And so it sounds like there is some kind of like ultimate coherence, but there's no access to it. And so this is why it's ultimately a Hindu parable. Some people in the West, secularists in the West, relativists in the West, relativists in the West like this viewpoint because it's seemingly a way to say we can accept everybody. But in reality, that's not how it actually works. In reality, if you're going to do some type of relativism, that's the way we do it in the West. In, I'm saying in Hinduism, they wouldn't call it relativism, but it's practically the same thing. Different gods, our God is this, your God, we have totally different practices than you, and we think your practices are very bad and wrong. We like ours, we don't like yours. And it's a form of relativism, and somehow we all kind of end up in the same place, even though we think you're really bad people. It's intellectually incoherent. It is morally shallow, and it does not work. It does not produce civic peace. And how can human beings actually, you actually deep down believe that my God is right and your God is bad? This is how it is in India. I mean, we don't hear so much about their religious clashes and their violence and so forth because, you know, you know the Western media doesn't really pay attention to that portion of the world. but. Um, if you talk to Indians, they say, yeah, this stuff happens. And so um, clashes between Hindus and Muslims and Hindus against Christians and Muslims against Sikhs and Hindus against Hindus. <laughs> because this is what it produces. So inside, it seems like, oh, yeah, we, we're all, we all can just have like this kind of like super you know, like doctrinal tolerance, but there is no real such thing. That's one of the things I want to point out. Inside of our society, if this kind of you know, secular vision, if, the, if the, the blind man and the elephant, which so many people in our society believe or want to believe, even if they've never heard the parable, they, they say to you some version of this type of worldview. Nobody has it all. We're all just kind of end up in the same place, you know, if we're all well-meaning, decent people, right? And in that version, if that was the case, then how come it's not producing something more peaceful in our society? Look at our society. Is this producing better peace in our society? There's unbelievable anger and violence and judgmentalism in our society across the board. And some of it, I think we should readily admit, some of it comes from Christians. But um, if this is where religion goes, it's one of the big critiques of religion, and I think it's a fair and good critique of religion. People in their deepest beliefs, because this is what we are as human beings. As human beings, we have to believe in something. 
And if we think the other person is wrong, we can't help but say, hey, we can't be with you or we have to be against you. That's just, that is utterly normal. So that's part one. These are the deep problems in our society. How do we deal with this? Let me go to part two. Practicing religion and the exclusionary clash of values. Um, a lot of people in our society think that only the religious people do this. And what I want to say in this uh, second portion is, no, human beings do this. <laughs> and all human beings are religious. Now, I got this, um, you know, uh, I got this portion, this illustration I got from Tim Keller. He actually gives a, a brilliant, similar sermon on this, although I'm kind of going to go to a different place in the latter portion of, of the sermon. But he gives this illustration. So this isn't a, you know, this, this isn't a deep, you know, or like, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty accessible illustration. And the reason, um, and I want to offer this to you because I think it's really helpful. Um, in our society, I don't know if you know this, but back in the 70s and the 80s, you know, various different states started practicing, um, passing these things called no-fault divorce laws. And so if you go back in American history, you get to the 60s and the 50s, there's far less divorce in America. And one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the important factors was legally, it was just a lot harder to get divorced. But now it's very easy to get divorced. I don't know if you know this, but in a no-fault divorce situation, if one of the parties says, I don't want to be divorced, they can just cite something like irreconcilable differences. You don't have to cite that they cheated on me or beat me or something like this. You can just cite something like irreconcilable differences, which is like pretty, like, I just don't get along with this person, right? And even if the other person wants to save the marriage, they basically can't save the marriage because the person who wants to bail can bail. And that's how, that's how it works. I don't know if you know that. That's how it works right here in California and all throughout America where they have no-fault divorce laws. Now, the majority of Americans agreed with these views. The divorce should be, they just say, people, you know, sometimes it just doesn't work out. And if it doesn't work out, you should be able to end the marriage because, you know, everybody has to kind of do what works for them, right? But actually, some people just think this is not a piece of religion, but it is. You ever think about that? So this isn't something about church. This isn't a, what we normally put in, the, you know, in, in this category. We tend to have like boxes in our mind. This is the religion category. And then no-fault divorce laws, are, it's just a practical thing that we do in our society. This is the legal category, and it's just in our culture. We just have to make things work. But it's actually rife with religion and its values and its beliefs. So if you go to another country, so why is that? In our, in our country, we believe that the, the needs or the wants of the individual should take primacy. They're, that's more highly to be valued than the wants of, say, the family. And so if someone wants to break their family because they just can't take it anymore, and look, I'm not trying to in any way be... Um, Judgmental, I do think there, there are good biblical reasons that there can be for divorce. It should be rare, so I'm not trying to make this judgment, but I'm just trying to play this out for you. In our culture, individual wants and desires take primacy over the family. But in another culture, in many other cultures, they absolutely believe the opposite. No way. Divorce should be hard. 
you are bound to stick it together with your husband or your wife for the sake of the kids, for the sake of the grandparents, for the children, for your names, all these different things. And it is legally this way, and your culture has stigma and will label you badly, and there'll be great judgment on you because you're breaking what is more importantly, what is right. <laughs> what you're doing is wrong. <laughs> so this is a, a flat-out question of right versus wrong. And these, what you realize is all human beings need to answer these questions. What is right and what is wrong? What is higher value? What is lower, more of a, you know what that is? These are all religious questions. And on what basis can you say this is right versus what is wrong? Which this value is higher than this value. So in, in the West, especially in, in, in our secular West, the, this individualism value has gotten so high that this is the way it works. But it's a religious viewpoint, you understand? So I'm not even talking about a specific religion that we like to name, but it is a religious viewpoint. And so this idea that we can all just kind of like, you know, we'll just go this way and you go this oh, Come on. That's not real. Even in our, own specific, in our society, so just to use, like, you know, some societies are extremely rigid about these things, stringent. Would you like that? I don't think most of us would agree on that. But there we are, it is a clash of religious beliefs and commitments, and it's not just something you do inside of a religious building. We insist that our society be run a certain way. And it can't, it's, it's not like, well, you just do it your way, we'll just do it our way. No. <laughs> we'll, we'll do it our way, and our way is better than your way. It's the right way. Excludes, it excludes. So the reason I'm pointing this out is, is that this notion that Christians are the only people who have this one pathway that this is the right way to live, and this is the right way, you know, as human beings, and then, you know, and then ultimately we have this question of eternity and so forth. This is just false. That there is this kind of, there's an assumed sense that everybody knows how to get along, and we all just kind of have this vague set of right and wrongs that we generally agree on, just don't violate that. But in the West, largely, it is due to the fact that most of our people, we still have the remnants of Christianity. The West, there's lots of people who are both conservative and liberal, and they would agree on many things. Just to, let me just give you an example. Like, we, we, have this, we have this campaign, like, why are so many non-Christians, like, we talked about this, you know, earlier, I mean, before I got into this sermon, why are so many non-Christians interested, so... You know, I, I find it very fascinating that when we talk about a missional work where we go on the reservation, on the Native American reservation, and help a lot of poor Native Americans and try to love them and, 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 then, and, and, and offer our love and kindness to them, why do non-Christians, people will be like, no way on the Jesus thing, why are they deeply interested in that? Because they share the same fundamental value that there's an important question of justice and mercy and kindness to the poor especially if there was oppression and racial injustice in the past. That needs to be righted. But do you think they think that way in, in India? Of course they don't. In India, they have a caste system, and they think that if you end up in this bottom caste, this, you're, you're literally shouldn't be touched. But that is a completely opposite viewpoint of religious values of right and wrong to 
the way we do things in the West. So here you think, you think two people have very different religious viewpoints, but their fundamental religious perspective on right and wrong is actually the same. Why? Because the people who don't believe in Christianity anymore are still influenced by its past and its values about how they look at it. They don't think it has anything to do with God. They just think if you're a decent person, you should care about uh, justice and oppression and the poor. Many people in the West, we just think that just, should just be a basic. Let me just tell you, that is not a basic. That's a religious viewpoint. <laughs> you know where that religious viewpoint comes from? The Bible. <laughs> and it comes from 2,000 years of Western Christian history. That's where it comes from. And if you, and if you go outside of the West, it becomes very obvious. <laughs> it becomes very obvious. Wow, that's a religious viewpoint. And they will think that the left-wing secularist <laughs> and somebody who has a more traditional Jewish or Christian, or even Mormon perspective on this, they're like, that just looks, seems Christianity to me. Seems like a Western Christian value to me. Because it is agreed on that point. It's religious. And it excludes. Okay? And so, what I want to say is a couple things before I finally get to the answer why Christianity has our position. Two things. Number one, there is... Um, there is an assumption that we all know what it means to be a good person. Maybe in the West there's a general agreement, but now we're starting to have bigger and bigger disagreements, which is why we have uh, you know, a lot of anger in our society. And, and um, the culture wars in America, you know what they should be called? They really should be called the morality and religion wars. That's because that's what they are. And who are, who are strong participants in the morality and religion wars? Oddly, atheists <laughs> and agnostics and secularists because they practice religion too. And exclusionary religion and judgmental religion. Because, because what, when, when something is right, so if this is the way it is, really, instead of saying, what I want to do is challenge you today, if you think that, that the Christianity is some kind of some special intolerant religion, I want to challenge you today at least we know what we believe, and we're not trying to make a boast of something, quite frankly, that's incoherent and false. Hmm. So I know this is a little bit of a tough you know, argument. I'm making an argument here, and it's something to think about. And it's something that I want, as, you, as Christians, if you believe in Jesus today, I'm not asking you to be tough to your neighbors, but you shouldn't think that, oh, you know, we're the intolerant people, and they're the... That's not true. That's not true. So I think everybody should get honest about what they believe. <laughs> Our society actually, I think, has a hypocrisy and a dishonesty about what they believe. They think they're just good people, and everybody knows how to be good people. And then there's these religious people, and somehow they're exclusionary. I think that's just false and, quite frankly, hypocritical. We at least are putting on the table, here's what we believe and why. And I think they're not seeing their holes and blindnesses of their incoherence in their beliefs. And I want to press on that. At least know what you believe. Of course, you may disagree with Christianity. Fine. We're still going to treat you as good neighbors because guess what? Our God demands that of us, <laughs> calls us that way. <laughs> Absolutely. And we know we're not better than you. We'll get to that in a moment. One other thing that I want to say before I get to the close of my message. There's an assumption in our society that everybody just knows how to be a good person. To a certain extent, it's not unreasonable. All human beings are made in the image of God. And what is right and good is written on our hearts. So you can go to India, 
And you can act with humility, love, gentleness, kindness, and they'll go, that's good. Because <laughs> we're all made in the image of God. In that sense, it's reasonable. <laughs> but then there is a religious assumption, <laughs> which is if we're all just good, then won't we all just kind of make it to the same place? We'll all just make it to heaven or wherever it is in the end. But how do you know that? <laughs> how do you know that? And on whose standard of good? You think those people are racist. Are they going to make it? You think those people care nothing about justice and oppression. Are they going to make it? You're a stingy person. You didn't, keep your, you didn't keep your promises to your wife. You were a bad parent. You were a polluter and, 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 and not a good environmentalist. Are you going to make it? These are all clashes of values. And at the end of the day, there's this kind of like, at what, what is being posited is actually a kind of legalism. That's really what is, really, what is being assumed, that everybody believes in a legalism. That you just go be a good person according to your standards, and then hopefully you'll make it. You'll be a good person according to your standards, and hopefully you'll make it. But that's a form of legalism. But it's not going to work. It's actually this kind of legalism that produces all the great clashes. Because if you can do what's right and good, and they can't, we can't help but look down on the people that they do. But actually, and here's where I'm going to get to what is at the core of Christianity. What Christianity teaches is actually very odd. Which is that nobody can be good according to their standard, especially if their standard is high, and who wants to follow anybody who has a low standard? That seems just lame, right? That we all fail, and we don't know how to really love our neighbors. And most of us are filled with pride and judgmentalism. And that's what unleashes all this bad stuff in our society. We're all this way. But it's Christianity that fundamentally has a resource to undermine this, heal this, repent of this, and produce a different kind of way of being human. So let me close this message this way. Union with Christ and the nature of true salvation. It's Christianity that does not believe in legalism. In fact, it's Christianity that says, everybody else is trying to say, I will do X, Y, Z, and then I will kind of climb my ladder up to hopefully heaven or whatever happens after this. Right? Everybody thinks that somehow you can kind of go do this thing, but Christianity says, nope. We're all in the same boat. Some of you are like, F minus, 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 and some are F minus, 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 okay? But we're all like, it's like, go swim that ocean. Some of you get two miles out and drown, and some of us will get like 100 yards out and drown in the, the pathway of righteousness building. Let's look at this passage. Okay, finally, you're like, are well, you going to preach the Bible passages? <laughs> all right? <laughs> yes. Um, John 4, this is, I could, we could, there's multiple passages I could have picked. Verse 6. So they ask this question. We don't know the way. And verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then you have this discourse where, you know, Phil, well, why, why? we don't know how to get to the Father. He's like saying, how can you say that if you've seen me? You, you know God. <laughs> now, it's not to say that there's no difference between the Father and the Son. But the Son is the one who takes you and gives you the Father. 
and how. I want to offer you this. Um, I know Christianity says that all the legalistic I said, we all think we're going to find a way. We're going to find a way. Find a truth. Get a life. We're going to make this life. But Jesus says, no. It isn't you're going to get the way, and like the Buddhists have their way, and they're going to have the, and then and the, the seculars have their truth, and you know, that's, that's how we even talk. You have your truth, I have my truth, which is all just another version of incoherent relativism, which causes violence and clash and judgmentalism. But it's only inside Christianity that says, actually, none of you can make it this way. None of you can make it this way. I'll have to come down, and God will have to come down to take you to God and offer you a path by grace that he will heal the human condition. That he will heal not just the things that we do bad, our so-called sins, but our sins through the righteous way that we think that we're going to reach up and make it and then judge other people because they don't do the same. Do the same. And I want to offer you, to close this message, I want to offer you, there's a, a big clue in the human heart. If you look at people, this is absolutely universal. I don't think this is a, just a Christian claim. You can go to any place in the world, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, rich, poor, any century. You read the historical texts. You can read a book out of like 1000 BC. You can read a Hindu text out of 500 years ago, 2000 years ago, and human beings are all this way. They're all this way. We're all this way which is this, At the, that we all long for somewhere along the line, something, something, we have to give our lives and our heart to something, and that is going to be our way. That will be our truth. That will give us our life. That will complete us and make us whole. Now, in the modern West, it used to be that people go, well, that had to be God. And um, I like to use um, Tim Keller's definition of like sin, which he actually got from Saren Kierkegaard, which is, what is sin? Building all your life on anything that is not God. But since we don't know how to see God and find God, we still, we still have to be human. So some of us have to go find that thing, that way that will make me, give me my truth and give me my life and give me the life that will make me whole, that will save me. Maybe you don't exactly use that language, but actually, the, the language that our society tends to use that will fulfill me. Fulfillment is salvation language. It's a religion language. Man, and it typically tends to be something like this. Some of you, like you have the higher things. You, you, you long for love. <laughs> love will save me. Maybe the love in my family will save me. Maybe finding that perfect soulmate will save me, will complete me. It'll be my way. Some of you, maybe it's for beauty. Some of you, it's for justice, and so you got to like fight for the cause for justice. Maybe some of you, it's something, uh, it doesn't even have to be something quite like that. It could just be money <laughs> or comfort. Or it's actually a little something better than that, achievement. If I just make it to this place in my field, then they'll remember me, and I'll have done something that matters, and that'll be my way. That'll be the way my life will be fulfilled. We all like this. And here's what the Bible teaches. There is a love. There is beauty. There is ultimate justice. 
there's honor. And what we all want is we want to go into this thing and then whatever that is, we want it to, that, that group of people that represents love or honor, those people to say, yes, you, you lived a worthy life. <laughs> and we embrace you. And we confer upon you that you lived in a really worthy way and a truth and a life. That's what we all want. If you guys have been to funerals, I mean, this is really, it is deep. Um, I'm, I'm the pastor of a, a relatively, a congregation of relatively people who are, you know, most of you guys are pretty young and hopefully none of you guys are going to die anytime soon, right? But we also partner with a congregation where there's a lot more elderly people. So I've gone to a lot of funerals and memorial services of uh, relatives of yours to mourn with you. And it's always this way. It's always this way. They don't talk about like how much money you made or whatever. Really, what they always say is there was a way that he lived. And it was really of a worthy of a truth. And this was a life. We all want this thing. And we're all looking for it. What the Bible tells you is there is an ultimate love and a beauty and a truth. And it's all in a person. <laughs> that God isn't an impersonal force out there, isn't just some transcendent, eternal justice or love or something like this. And it is an ultimate person. And here's what salvation is. A lot of people just think, if you're just a good person, then you'll just end up in the place, and then you're saved. Not right. That is, that is a very, very low and shallow way of thinking about salvation. In the deepest place of your human heart, you must find that which you deeply, deeply love, honor, worship. And what you worship will receive you, forgive you, envelop you, and love you. That's what we're all looking for. And here's what the gospel teaches. He who is love incarnate, absolute beauty, most worthy of honor. Ingenuity, creativity, <laughs> the one who flung stars into space. He came down and he said, none of you will ever be able to make the way, the truth, but I am the way. And he came to say, I will forgive you. I will atone for all your failures, which will be many and terrible. I will wash you. I will embrace you. And if you turn to me and give your life to me, you and I will be one. I will embrace you. And we'll be united. And you will be cherished and made worthy and loved forever. Then you will have fulfillment. You'll be made whole. What we have, what we call shalom. That's salvation. And let me say this to you. You're a person who doesn't yet quite convince that Jesus is this person. I can understand. Here's what I want to say. Go out into the world and find a greater God. A God who will offer this to you. Every forgiveness, atonement, washing, acceptance, 
embrace everything that your heart has ever been looking for for a worthy life. It is in Christ. Because he isn't a way, he isn't a truth, he is the way. And only when you're fully, fully united to him can you be made whole. Can you look for that? That's the God you're looking for. That's the standard of the real way that you can be made whole as a human being. If you can go find a better, greater God than that, more power to you. But I'll say to you, I don't think it exists. I don't even think there can be a greater God than Jesus. And if salvation is really to be utterly united to a deep and gloriously beautiful person, then how can it be anyway salvation is to be with a person? If you're not with that person, then, by de- then how can you be saved? It's the thing that your heart deeply, deeply needs to be made whole is in a person with all his infinite love and beauty and wisdom and worthiness. How can it be another way? you got to find that person. And what we offer to you, the very, very good news is there is such a person. And he has come. He has come to seek you, to rescue you, to invite you to be united with him forever and ever. And his name is Jesus. Would you consider him? If you're hearing this message today, would you consider him? And for all those of you who already do believe in him, would you think about how very often we fall away from this? How so easily we fall away from this? We do give ourselves to like, okay, if my career, if my career just like accepts me, then, 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 then I'll be whole. And we fall off. And we kind of fall into all the polytheisms of our times. Would you cast that away and run to Jesus? And don't be nervous. It's not because we're exclusive, because this is where the deepest, realest, most truest, fullest hope and completion can ever be. When the one that can fully complete you and fulfill you is a person. He's come to love you and rescue you. This is the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we often think of you as this figure of religion. And then we go about our days and we're looking for fulfillment. How can I be most human and have a life? Find my truth. Find my way to a truth and a life. When you have offered it to us by grace, by mercy, by forgiveness, by all that you have done for us. And if we would but follow you, and if we would but know you, and if we would be known by you and loved by you, we'll become finally most human because we have finally met the way, the one who is the way, the life, the truth, in whom is to be cherished by God Almighty, like father to son to daughter. A love and an acceptance that's absolutely unbreakable. A beauty that can never be topped. It was infinite. We pray, Lord, that we would come to you.
If there's anybody hearing this message, either in person, maybe online, or through our podcast, if they are feeling this pull and tug, maybe I need to consider Jesus. Would they hear? This is you, Lord Jesus. Using this word, this truth, which speaks to the truth, you, and tugged by the Holy Spirit, by God himself. And today, as we hear this message again, would you give us, all who do know you, a lightness of heart and a deep humility, because we never earned any of this, and a great patience and understanding so that we can be really good citizens and really good neighbors, in fact, the best neighbors, that people who deeply disagree with us, in fact, may even hate us, that we can begin to return their judgment and hate, not with fear and a counter-judgment, but instead that we would offer them patience and humility and love and offer them the truest salvation there can possibly be, but the only one there really is, you, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would learn, help us to learn how to walk in this with lightness and gladness and to be a blessing to our neighbors. We worship you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.